So far the reading then of this parable as we find it in the prophet of Ezekiel. My friends, I uh, laid aside the series on Acts uh, to preach this sermon to you, especially in light of the beginning of our catechism in Sunday school year and all the responsibilities that it entails upon us as parents and as teachers, as children and as young people. There's one thing that is painful in our life that we have to bear with, uh, dear friends, and I think it's something we've all experienced, is betrayal. Betrayal. You know, it's one thing when, when somebody does something to you that's, that's uh, insulting or bad or hurtful, right? But it's quite another thing when a friend does that to you, right? When somebody that you love, somebody that you trusted, somebody that you are in close contact with, when they do something like that to you, right, that's doubly painful. We always think of the name Benedict Arnold, right, with a certain amount of disgust, right, because Benedict Arnold uh, was an American general and quite a successful American general. But he turned his back uh, upon the U.S. cause in the Revolutionary War and went with the British. Betrayal! Boy, we just want to, uh, we just despise the name of Benedict Arnold. Why? Because he was a betrayer. I don't think we despise General Cornwallis or General Howe or King George, the, whoever it was, right? I mean, they did many bad things to us, right? But we despise the name of Benedict Arnold. Oh, what a wretch he was. How could he turn his back upon us in our time of need like that? Right? There's a special contempt for people who betray. Well, my friends, that is exactly now the feelings, and that's really what you have to have when you read this chapter. You have to not just read it and understand it, but you have to feel something of it, of the wickedness of the betrayal that is represented to us here in this chapter. That's really the, the, the meaning that God intends for us to have and to sense and to feel when we read this passage So I have to quickly move my way through this passage, my friends, and then some points of application. Now at the beginning of this passage, at the beginning of this parable then, God relates how he found this baby who had obviously just been born. The baby was still kicking about in its blood. But just like abortion in our own day, this was a primitive abortion, right? This child had just been thrown out onto the open field. No one cared for her, unloved, unwanted. And you can read there, that your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water, you were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. And then these pitiful words in verse 5, no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you. Very clearly, my friends, that's a reference then to Israel when it became, uh, when it came of age and it was in Egypt. And they were slaves in Egypt. They were the contempt of the land. People despised farmers. And of course, every civilization has despised its slaves. But as if that wasn't even bad enough, the Egyptians threw them out of their country, threw the Israelites out as a result of these ten plagues. And and Israel was a people that was unwanted, unloved, and exposed to every hardship. No military, no, no soldiers that could fight for it. It was completely vulnerable, thrown out into the open field. And yet it was at that time my friends, that God discovers Israel. He finds that people in all their weakness as the, life, as the life is ebbing away from that infant child cast out, an infant girl cast out into the open field. God comes and he speaks. And he speaks that word, my friends, live. And in the text that we have, it's repeated. And again, I said to you, live. Because God spoke to that girl and he took her under his care. He washed her 
clothed her and all the other things that he did for her that we consider soon. And he spoke, live to that child. And of course that represents that uh, when Israel had been thrown out of Egypt, thrown into the desert, unloved, unwanted, they multiplied rapidly, didn't they? Already in Egypt they were multiplying rapidly. And God made them great. Uh, God made the, uh, he, he made them, in verse 7, I made you numerous like plants of the field. So God spoke to this, this dying infant daughter, live. Well, then God marries Israel. Now, of course, here the analogy, you know, again, all these, all these parables, right? You're not to press every detail, right? Because, of course, for us to adopt a child and then marry her, that wouldn't be right, right? But again, you have to see the picture here because now God marries Israel in the second place. In verse 8, you can see that things have changed. This daughter is no longer an infant. The daughter has now grown up to a beautiful young woman. The time for love or the time for marriage had come. And then this ancient custom of spreading the skirt over as a sign, right, that this man had took this woman for his wife. We see a similar thing, right, when Boaz spread his skirt over Ruth, right? And then it says, and I entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. Now that certainly refers then to when Israel had reached Mount Sinai, that God entered into a covenant with his people at that time. And God married Israel. He married them. So the metaphor changes really from an from a infant girl being rescued from her, from her uh, certain death to a, a young woman who is now married. But it goes on there that not only was, did God marry Israel, but in verse 10 through 14, he describes all the things that he did for her. And this is really a critical part of the parable, my friends. You have to, you have to grasp this. All these things that God did for, this, for his wife here, for his, for his bride, clothed you with embroidered cloth, gave you shoes and fine linen, ornaments, bracelets, necklace, a ring, a crown, silver, gold, dress, and all these things, the finest of food, fine flour, honey, and oil. And in verse 14, the conclusion, your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. You were the most beautiful woman that could be, that could be thought of. And the fame of your beauty went out throughout all the nations. So God marries Israel and he does all these things for her, and she becomes a stunning beauty of a woman. But then in the third place, my friends, this bitter, bitter betrayal. Let's look closely at this then, because in verse 15, we have the beginning of it. But you trusted in your beauty. In other words, you put your confidence, you put your respect, you put the, the focus of your life, if I might say, on your beauty. Now, of course, the focus should have been on the one who gave her that beauty, on the one who rescued her from her squalor and from her certain death. But no, all of a sudden she realized, I'm beautiful. And she began to look to that. I trust, you trusted in your beauty. And, and no doubt because of her beauty, she got a great deal of attention. And she began to play the harlot. She became a prostitute. And then read carefully with me, my friends, these verses. Verse 16. You took some of your clothes. Whose clothes? Well, it says your clothes. But remember, the text made it very clear in verses 10 through 14 that it was God who clothed her with this embroidered cloth and with these ornaments and with these jewelry. 
But now this harlot, this, this wretched woman, she took the clothes that I gave you and you made for yourself high places. In other words, uh, shrines to idols of various colors and played the harlot on them. Spiritual adultery, right? The harlotry, of course, here is, is always a, re- a symbol for idolatry, for going after other gods. Verse 17, you took your beautiful jewels. Again, your beautiful jewels, but these jewels came from God. Made of my gold and of my silver. And now, catch the pronouns here, my friends. My gold, my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Imagine that, my friends. She took the literal gold necklace, gold bracelets, her gold earrings, and the nose ring. She took that gold, she took that silver, she melted it down and made out of it an idol. It's, it's, it's too staggering to, to believe that this woman would have gone to such lengths, taking the very gold which made her beautiful, given to her by her, the one who rescued her, and she made an idol out of it. But it continues in verse 18. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Again, the, the parable makes very clear. And again, you, 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 that's why it made it so clear, right? Because initially you wouldn't think that that would be so important that God gave this girl incense and oil and, and fine flour. But again, the parable is trying to make a point here, right? That it was my oil, my incense, verse 19, my bread which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer it before them for a soothing aroma. So here this, this woman takes this, this food, this, this, these delicacies, and instead of eating them herself and giving thanks to the one who gave it to her, she actually takes it and she offers up a food offering to the idol. She goes to those high places made out of the clothes that God had given her. Again, to be, to be perfectly practical, my friends, it's almost as if, as if God comes to this, to this woman and comes to this high place and he Hey, isn't that the robe that I gave you? And where did this gold come from to make this this idol, this statue here? Isn't that the gold and the silver that I gave you? Isn't that the necklace? It's almost as if God begins to recognize the things that he gave her. And in her boldness, in her, in her, uh, uh, the incredible ingratitude and arrogance, she doesn't even seem to try to hide it. And then the worst of all, my friends, moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. And then we have the sin, and that's also the title of the, of the sermon in verse 22. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, my friends. A failure to remember. Failing to remember. You know, when I was writing this sermon, I couldn't help but think last Sunday. No, was it two weeks ago now? Was it last Sunday? I can't remember. We had the Lord's Supper. And what did I say? Do you remember? Take. Eat. And what's next? Remember and believe. How quickly God's people fail to remember. How quickly their memories fade. And this young woman, she forgot the time 
that she was kicking about in her own blood in the afterbirth with the life ebbing out of her under the hot sun of, of, that, of that region. And God came and he plucked her out of that and said, live. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. And then in the fourth place comes this punishment. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. And in these verses, verses 31 then through, through 40, we have this punishment that God uh, will bring upon these people. And what do we notice about this punishment? Isn't this interesting, my friends? Note what the punishment is. It begins in verse 35. And then the the actual punishment in verse 37. So read this with me in verse 37. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. Let me just stop there a minute. You you might think, let's let's suppose that a person leaves this church and goes off and lives a life of sin. Right? They, they party with their friends. Okay? They whine women in song. Right? They live a life of sin. They've abandoned everything that they were taught in this, in this church. There seems to be no moral uh, that they observe anymore. And now God comes to them and says, you know, I'm going to punish you now for your sin. I'm going to take all those friends that you have, that you like to party with. Right? I'm going to take all those friends and I'm going to make you spend time with them. <laughs> and at first, you could think the person would be like, well, Great! I mean, that's what I did in the first place. I left this stodgy place with all these folks and I went off to live the high life with them. But my friends, keep reading. Keep reading here. God says, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare. Some friends, huh? Some friends. But my friends, this is what God is teaching in this parable. That the punishment that God will give his people is that they will have their sins. They will have their friends. And what initially might sound like a great, a great thing, this is, this is great, but those friends will not turn out to be friends. The key principle here, my friends, that we, that we learn in this punishment that God visits upon his people is that sin is its own punishment. If you're taking notes, please write that down. If you're not taking notes, memorize it. Sin is its own punishment. And when God will punish his people, he says, you left for sin, you may have your sins. And God turns his back and leaves. That will not end well, my friends. You can be sure of that. That is a principle that is taught, not just in this passage, it's taught in other passages of Scripture as well. That when God will punish his people, He leaves them off in their sins. He gives them what they want, essentially. They will leave you naked and bare. God clothed her. God found her naked and bare. 
And he washed her and clothed her. But when she went back to her friends and when God abandons her to that lifestyle, she will become naked and bare again. I have to hasten on. The fifth point, the punishment. Spiritual adultery. Well, that was the punishment. Fifth, all in the family. Again, we have this, this is such a striking parable. I've always been fascinated by this, by this parable because at the end of this passage, he comes and he says this proverb in verse 44, like mother, like daughter. Remember at, at the beginning verses, God had said, your mother is a Hittite and your father is an Amorite. Now that wasn't literally the case, right? Literally, they, they, their mother was not a Hittite and the, and the father was not an Amorite. But it means your moral father, morally, you're so like the Hittites and the Amorites that it's as if your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. That's what it says in verse 45. But then in verse 46, it talks about your older sister is Samaria. By the way, at this time, Samaria had been already judged and taken off into exile. They're not, the ten tribes aren't up there anymore. They've been, they've been taken by the Assyrians and taken off into exile. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom. Let me tell you about your family, Israel, God says. Your mother is a Hittite. Your father is an Amorite. Your older sister is the ten tribes in the, in the north. And again, how, how, how sharp that must have, how convicting that must have been for the two tribes in the south to hear that because they prided themselves. We're the covenant people of God. Those people in the north, they went off and worshipped Baal. And God came down and punished them and took them off. They got what they deserved. That's their own fault. You, you should have listened to God. You should have been faithful. But now God says, that's your older sister. And your younger sister, this is even more astonishing, your younger sister is Sodom. Now Sodom, of course, was no earthly relationship to Israel. But again, morally, God says, you people are so filthy wicked and unfaithful in your lifestyle that your younger sister is Sodom. That's why I say all in the family, Israel's mother, Israel's father, Israel's older sister, and Israel's younger sister. But my friends, as we, as we finish up this, this passage, we come to verse 53 where we see the first revelation that we have of divine grace. Nevertheless, is there a more precious word, my friends, in all of Scripture than that? Nevertheless. There's a sermon bound up in that word right there, isn't there? Nevertheless. I will restore their captivity. Now, I wish I could say more about this, but the captivity of Sodom and the older sister Samaria, God promises to restore them to their country. Now again, this is all how we understand prophecy, right? That, that has never happened, right? Sodom and Gomorrah were permanently obliterated long before this, this came along. Uh, the, two, the ten tribes in the north never were brought back to their land. This is a prophecy of something in the future, something bigger, something coming, something that pertains to the tribes that are not Israel, not Jewish, the coming in of the Gentiles, but again, I continue. Again, I want you to catch the grace. Your sister Sodom, verse 55, with her daughters, and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state. Uh, verse 58, once you have borne the penalty of your lewdness, for thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done. 
you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. So Israel is a covenant breaker. They broke the covenant. But in verse 60, there's no failure to remember on God's part. Verse 60, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. What covenant was that again, uh, children? What covenant was that? Remember, that was the covenant at Sinai. Remember when God married his people? I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Now you should understand this, my friends, is that I will establish a new covenant. The covenant that I made with you at Sinai, that is going to be let go. That is going to drop. But I am going to make a new and a better covenant with you. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters. Isn't that interesting? Your sisters, the younger sister Sodom, older sister Samaria, you will receive them both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters. In other words, they are going to be brought in to the covenant people of God. I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Right? Those Sodom, Sodom, for sure, right, was not a part of any covenant that God made with his people. Now, the ten tribes in the north were part of the covenant, right? But it's not going to be because of that covenant, but it's going to be because of this new, this everlasting covenant that God is going to bring in not just the two tribes, not even just the ten tribes, but all people, Sodom, even the Sodomites, will come into God's, the number of God's covenant people. And the result is given us very clearly there so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, So the grace of God that nevertheless brings shame and embarrassment to the people of God. And yet they are forgiven. Well, that's the the text, my friends. I'd like to make some points of, of application on that. And just one point, really. One point of application. The danger of privilege. The danger of privilege. And again, I can't help but think of our, especially our young people, our children. It applies to everyone, of course, but especially for you as we begin another season of Sunday school and catechism, it seems so routine. We do it every year. I've been down that hall a million times, right? I, I get my, my book and I, I sit and I know all what we have to do. The danger of privilege, my friends, is this. A failure to Remember. That's the danger of privilege. Let me say something about the privilege first. You know, my friends, well, let me just say this. This may not be the best example, but it just, it works. You drive down the freeway and you see the sign that says, $85 million in the Powerball lottery, right? And I know, (laughs) I know what we all think. Boy, what would I do with that kind of money, right? But of course, we all know that the chances of winning such a lottery are absolutely out of the question. But my friends, there's, there's something even more extraordinary. And that is the privilege into which you were born. That far exceeds, far exceeds winning 85 billion in the lottery. First, just being born in this time of world history. Right now, I'm not even talking about being a Christian, okay? I'm talking about just being born 
in this time of world history, when we have health care, surgeries, aspirin, all these things, we grow up with very little hardship. My friends, I ask you just to think back to your grandparents. If you knew them, how did they live? And again, I, I, I think of my grandfather. He had a landscaping business, right? He lived right down here on Sheridan. And I'll never forget as a young person him telling me that he would, back his, he would back his truck up to a pile of dirt. And I said, well, how did the dirt get on the truck, Grandpa? He looked at me like I was crazy. He says, well, we, we shoveled it on. You shoveled the dirt onto a truck with a, with a shovel? I mean, it was just astonishing to me. I couldn't believe it. My friends, they bore hardship, right? When they had surgeries, they just grew used to having a great deal of pain, right? And nowadays you go to the hospital and they say, well, rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10, right? And, and we go through the most invasive surgeries with very little pain. So just in the, in the time period in which we live, it's a time period of extraordinary privilege. The hardships that they had to face we, we can't even conceive. But my friends, of course, that's, that's really, I just raised that, right? But, but the real privilege, my friends, is that you were born into a covenant household. You were born into a household where the word of God reigned supreme. Now, I think most of us here have been. There may be some exceptions. But by far, the vast majority of us, from our youngest days, were taught to love the Savior. The words of our catechism were put upon our lips. We learned the songs that are in this hymn book. We learned that on, you know, sometime in September, you went down that hall and you sat and you listened to the stories and learned the songs that the teacher taught you. And my friends, the result of that kind of privilege as we grow older is that we forget. We fail to remember the unspeakable privilege that that is. I wish, my friends, I could take you to the halls of the Loy Norick School and to see the awful suffering that those poor children have to face every day. When I ride my bike home from church, I go down the sidewalk here, down Lover's Lane, and I see them coming back, and my heart breaks. You think of what these poor children are going home to, probably nobody home. They have all different color hair. They have jewelry hanging off every part of their body. I wish I could take you sometime into that house. When the father figure comes home, probably not even the actual father, right? Probably just a boyfriend or whatever. And again, I don't want to dwell on all that, my friends. You, you know some of that, I think. But the privilege is that we forget what we have here in this place. We forget what God has given us. We forget the time, my friends, as this daughter, when she was kicking about in her blood, and God said unto her, live. Why, my friends, do you sit in these benches today? And why aren't you in one of those homes watching a movie this morning? Or, or putting yourself to bed at night? And all the other hardships that these poor people face, the abuse, we forget, don't we? And that's the danger of privilege. 
Sometimes, I, I gave three examples here. An example of a youth who grows up in the church. He grows up having been taught all the things that he needs to live. His parents probably spent thousands of dollars on a Christian education. He grows up with a good business sense. He grows up with how to live in this world. But as he grows, he forgets. He forgets the grace of God. He becomes sick of the rules that he has to follow in this church, sick of the strictness, sick of the restrictions. I want more liberty and more freedom. And he takes the the health and the wealth, the strength, the education, all that was given him in his youth, all the privilege that he has or she has, and they go off and they live in sin. This is the first example I want to give you. I hope this is the example that applies to no one here. But it happens that young people grow up in this church and finally decide that they want nothing to do with it anymore. They forget. They forget the privilege that they had. And then we see, inevitably, we see working out in their life the judgment of God. I will give you into the hands of your lovers, says the Lord. And these young people go off. And God judges them in that way. And we see them make a wreck of their life. And all we can do is stand by helplessly, watching them step by step as they wreck their life. And it's heartbreaking to see the very things that, we, that, that, that your parents and your grandparents and your church worked to give you, those very things you now turn against God. My friends, if there's anybody here, young or old, who has to look back and say, that's my life, or that's what I'm contemplating, I ask you to consider carefully the end. Where does that end, my friends? Where does that end? It ends with you naked and bare all over again in the world with no family, no one loves for you, no one cares for you anymore. And you've wrecked your life and you wake up at age 40, or 50, or 60, and realize that you destroyed yourself. And that the friends who you thought were your friends are not your friends. They stripped you naked. They scoffed and ridiculed and laughed at you, and left you with nothing to show. My friends, the old uh, cathedral quartet used to sing a song, Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. And as I see the young people sitting here, you're on this side of those choices that people make. I ask you to consider. I ask you to remember this morning. Remember. I move away from example one because I I really hope that, I, I really suspect that, well, I hope no one is really thinking, I'm going to go off and live in sin. That's not usually how the devil tempts people anyway. At any rate, I I rush to my second example because there's another more common failure to consider. Again, young people will grow up in our church, but they're so familiar with what happens in this church that they become a little bored with it. Now, these people are not going to go off and live in sin. They're not looking to live uh, a a life of of wickedness against God. They're still interested in being Christians. But again, in in a lesser way, and I emphasize that, my friends, in a lesser way, Okay? They fail to remember. They fail to remember the privilege that they have and the treasure that they have in this 
body of churches. And I use that language carefully because I don't want to make it tonight about this church, okay? It's not about Covenant United Reformed Church here in Kalamazoo. And yet, my friends, the Covenant United Reformed Church is part of a body of churches and is part of a system of belief that is known as Reformed that is such a treasure that we often see, and how many times haven't we seen it in our church especially, that young people grow up, but they grow weary with it. They get a little bored with it. They fail to remember the treasure that has been handed down to us from father to son and from father to son, again, over the generations. It's another case of forgetting. And I can't help but notice, too, my friends, that in our day, feelings are king. How do you feel? I've heard it so many times. I feel so welcome in this church, Pastor. I'm going to leave this church, and I'm going to go to another church because I feel so welcome in this church. Or my friends go to this church. Or the worship there is so lively, I, I, I feel so connected to God. Feelings are king. Experience is king, isn't it? My friends, I'll just point out to you that you can have such feelings at the local bar or at the bingo club. Well, you could say, well, that, I mean, that's not, they don't stand for Christianity. You're not worshiping God there. Ah, so it matters what a church stands for. Is that what you're telling me then tonight or this, uh, this morning? It matters what a church stands for, to which I add my hearty amen. It matters what a church professes. It matters what a church believes. Because in no way am I trying to denigrate feelings or experience. I want to put it in its proper place. Feelings are not king. Again, such feelings can be had in any organization of belonging or of connecting to God, connecting to Christ. But which Christ? So this is the question I press upon you. It matters what an organization, it matters what a church believes. What is the truth that is taught in that church? And I know you might say, well, you know, in Reformed churches, all you do is truth. You you, you guys have overemphasized the truth. Well, there might even be some truth to that. That may be a valid criticism. But my friends, it matters what a church professes to believe. And here's another thing that I see happening in our day. People go to a church. People go to a church and I say, uh, well, this church professes doctrines A and B. Do you believe those doctrines now too? Oh, well, no, no, I don't. Isn't that interesting that they go to a church that they don't even entirely sign on to everything that the church believes? What does that tell me? That tells me that the truth, the doctrine of the church has become secondary. And what has been put on the throne is the feelings. I know I don't entirely agree with this church on infant baptism or on, on what the, uh, the, the life of a Christian is. We talked yesterday, last week, about the relationship between justification and sanctification, right? But this church is so strong, and I, I just feel like the teaching here is so good, and the, and the, the pastor is so dynamic, and, and whatever it might be. Feelings have become the arbiter, or the, or the decision maker, haven't they? Yes, I have these disagreements, but it's, I feel so close to God here. These are all things that we've all heard, Right? And feelings become king. Experience becomes king. And so I ask you to consider, my friends. I ask you to consider and I ask you to remember. What is it that this church professes to believe? And again, I I don't want to make it about this church, this particular body right here. By the way, I also understand that people's theology may change. 
Uh, through a study of the scripture, you may come to believe that infant baptism is wrong. And then you go to another church. I understand that. that, that that's not something I may want to discuss that with you, but that's, a, a, let's say, an honorable way to leave. But to leave a church, my friends, because I don't feel connected here, right? You may need to ask yourself some questions. Have you failed to remember what, what, what takes place here in this church? The truths that have been handed down to us from our fathers in the past. And is it possible that you've put feelings on the throne? That you're making a decision based on feelings? And then this chapter, my friends, has a verse for you. There's a verse for you in this chapter. I want to press that upon you this morning. Ezekiel 16 and verse 30. How languishing is your heart? It could be translated, how sick, how weak is your heart? These feelings that you have... This woman had feelings, too, as she was a harlot. Now, again, I'm not accusing people of leaving this church of being a harlot. But I am saying that the principle is the same, that there's a failure to remember there. And there's a, there's a, a failure to remember what is the truth of the church that you confess because you, you're leaning on your heart. You're leaning on your feelings. And that's the mark of our day. Feelings are king. And that's what so many churches today do. They're, they're factories of good feelings. And they, they make you feel good about yourself. Again, I'm not painting every church with that brush, okay? But it's something to be careful of. Because this is something our own day, our own church climate is so especially susceptible to. Pastors are hired based on how well they fill the seats. Music leaders are hired based on how people feel when the worship's taking place. And my favorite one at all, by which I mean my worst one of all, this church has something for my children. I always chuckle when I hear that. This church has something for my children. What does that mean, my friends? I'll tell you what it means. Usually, nine times out of ten, it means my children love this church. Or my children love the Sunday school program. I, I, I shouldn't laugh, but I, I just kind of chuckle because I just think of my father and my grandfather, what they would have said to such nonsense. At any rate, so we become bored, and, and by the way, you know, we even have an expression, right? The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. By the way, I experienced the reverse of this when I worked at the seminary because at the seminary, I had people who grew up in sort of Bible churches and, and they, would, they would come to the seminary and they were so fascinated with Reformed theology and Reformed life and practice. But out in the Reformed churches, it's the opposite, isn't it? People grow up and they become fascinated with other things that are out there. I ask you to remember. Remember. Remember too, my friends, that decline in our spiritual life is always incremental. It's always incremental. It starts small. Which of the churches that we, we think about, my friends, which of the popular churches in our own city, would rejoice to have a sermon that makes you ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you? I, I know that humiliation is not all of religion. But there is one part of true religion, my friends, that is humiliation and feeling poorly about yourself and acknowledging that it is my fault, that it is my sin that brought me into these circumstances. 
That is a part of true religion. But it's a part that's largely forgotten in the very popular churches of our time and age. My friends, I have one more example. Very quickly, one more example, and that is for parents. Also, our privilege as parents, my friends, can lead us to to forget, to to focus on something else. And I want to speak to you uh, this morning, parents, of what a blessing it would be. I just want to give you one, one thing here this morning. What a blessing it would be if your children could hear from your mouth your story. How was it that God brought you to faith in Christ? And if you don't have such a a story, uh, again, many of us having been brought up in the the Christian faith, all of us have a story of God's dealings in our lives. Times when we came into great distress. Times when we backslid from the Lord, when we fell into sin, and how God brought us back from that. My friends, my dear parents in our midst here, do your children know those stories? Have you ever sat down with your children and said, come, let me tell you what the Lord has done for my soul? Have you ever told your children, I was once kicking about in my blood, and God came to me and said, live? Those are powerful stories. Again, in my own experience, there's so many people who tell me that God used the testimony of their own parents to bring them to a closer state a closer life with Christ, or to bring them to Christ, period. That is a powerful story, my friends. It was powerful for me. I can remember my grandmother telling me her, her story. In fact, it is, a, it is a story that the whole Inglesma family knows. Why? Because that is, a, that is a defining story for our family. And I would, I would ask you, my friends, to take your children, tell them your story. Maybe you have multiple stories, I'm sure we do, of what God has done in your life. Let them hear it. Let them know it. A precious thing, my friends, that you can give your children. Don't let your privilege let you forget. Oh, I send my child to Sunday school. I send them to catechism. I send them to the Christian school. Well, my friends, the best school is before they go to bed at night. And when you take them in your lap, and when you speak to them about the things of God, let our children hear those things from our mouths. Let us Lord, we come before you at the close of this sermon. And Lord, we too feel a deep sense of humiliation at how poorly we have been, we have acted as parents, and how many opportunities we have let slip, and how many times we have failed to remember, Lord, that time in our life when you spoke to us, live. When you rescued us from certain death as we were kicking about in our blood. Lord, I pray that you would bring back these things to our minds and to our memories and help us to remember them and to hand them on to the next generation. Lord, I pray for those young people who may be thinking poorly of the Reformed faith and religion, and who are thinking of uh, looking over the fence at other churches and other, uh, even other religions. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the great treasure that they have here in this place that has been handed down to us over the, over the centuries, and that we, O oh Lord, would grow to love it and to become enthusiastic for it. Bless the instruction as it now takes place, Lord. Bless each child and each young person and fill us with joy and gladness that we are counted worthy to sit in in this place. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number 205. We better just sing the first verse of 205. 205, the tender love a father has 
for all his children dear. Such love the Lord bestows on them who worship him in fear. So number 205, just verse 1 in the blue hymnal. Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.